So, uh, where I am, I'm the Jesus Loves Me guy, and people expect it because I sing it every week, and Spencer didn't let me do it. So, thank you very much. Uh, when we were on our way over here this morning, Terry brought me for early service, uh, and he looked at my Bible, and wedged inside, I've got all of these notes. This manuscript is what it is. And he said, uh, why do you do that? Is that Spencer's fault? It is his fault. It is exactly his fault. A lot of times he'll bring a manuscript up here. I don't know if you know it because he doesn't look down a lot. But the reason that I do this, I came out of college knowing how not to use a manuscript. But Spencer said, if you go preach it, I want it written down so that we can critique it and we can look at it and we can go over it together and I can make notes and I can scribble and give it back to you. And so now I'm stuck with the manuscript and I'm trying to grow out of it, but I hadn't, so here I am with it today. So little pieces like that I've taken with me and now I've taken Jesus Loves Me Too and I've taken the manuscript. You decide if those are good things or not, but I've taken them. Today is the last time I will ever preach at the Valley View Church of Christ. Let me tell you why. It's because the only time you have me back is when I have children. It's done, you know. <laughs> I hope, oh, fingers crossed. Madison said, don't you jinx us, you know. Uh, no, but if you haven't met Silas and Nana Joe, I want you to take the opportunity to do it today. And uh, the last thing before I jump into it, what's really cool about being here, one of the things, is that I'm looking out and I do recognize a bunch of you, but there are a bunch of you I do not know. And... You know what that means? It means you're growing. And that is awesome. It's beautiful. So this new place that you call home, if you're new, I just want you to know I called home for a little while. And the little while that I was here has had impact on my ministry and always will forever. As you guys are doing this resident ministry thing, keep doing it. Don't stop doing it. It matters for the kingdom. I went to college, and they gave me the tools that I needed to go into ministry and do it. And I could have graduated and left and went right in. But this little time here, this year that I spent with you, has helped me stay in ministry. It matters. Get as many resident ministers in here as you possibly can. Do two or three of them at a time. Because everyone that you send through is a blessing to the kingdom. Amen? Well, you amend it, so you better do it, okay? Go to the first slide, please. So, I like the Avett Brothers, and uh, <laughs> I love this song. This is called Murder in the City. Now, you may not know this song, and if you don't, that's okay. Uh, you will understand the theme that this song is going for. I wonder which brother is better. Which one our parents love the most. I sure did get in lots of trouble, and they seem to let the other go. A tear fell from my father's eyes. And I wondered what my dad would say. He said, son, I love and I'm so proud of you both in so many different ways. What this song is doing is plucking at more than the strings of a guitar. What it's doing is it's playing a melody that strums in the heart of so many people that are even here today. Because for some of you, it wouldn't be that hard to imagine, but a relationship with a father, but a relationship with a mother, and what you feel like you're not 
the preferred one. Well, they'd rather not have you around, or maybe I'm not even wanted in this family at all, or do they love my sibling more? And this father's had this realization happen to him. So the brother asked him, Daddy, who do you love more? I think I know. I have some assumptions about why you like Brother Butter. So tell me, Daddy, who do you like more? And his daddy's heartbroken. If you've ever been a part of this and you've seen a family do this, you know that this hurts everybody. Not just the child that is obviously frustrated, but it hurts a parent. Because what a parent just realized is that they have gone so wrong in the relationship with a child that their child feels like the sibling is preferred over them. Why do I bring this up? It's because this idea that's found in our songs is also found in Scripture. We can read about it, and this dovetails really nicely with what we're going to be talking about in Luke chapter 15, the parable of the prodigal son. Here's what's so key to the song, especially as it relates to our text. You've got a son who thinks that they've got their daddy figured out. Daddy, I know you. I know what you like. I know who you preferred. And then, after he's made this caricature in his mind, where he's got daddy all figured out, he's made this caricature in his mind, what he finds out is, this daddy that I thought I knew, I, I did not know at all. I want you to read with me in Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 19. Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 19. He said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. He divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into the far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went, and he hired himself out to the one, of the, one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here in hunger? I will rise, and I will go to my father, and I will say to him, Daddy, Father... I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. You all know the story of the prodigal son. You've heard this sermon a hundred times before. A son asks his father. He says, Daddy, I want to collect my inheritance. And it's not as though his dad is dead. His dad is not dead, but who his son, he may as well have been. He said, Daddy, your inheritance to me means nothing. It's worth a fun weekend. So I, I think I'd like to collect my inheritance now. And he cashes in. And don't you know, <laughs> the brother and the father knew what the prodigal would do. They knew he'd go blow that dough. He'd go blow it in a faraway land. But they don't stop him. And that makes me wonder, why don't they stop him? And can we pause here for a second before we continue? I heard somebody say not long ago 
Oh, that God is a gentleman. What does it mean that God is a gentleman? What that means is God won't make you love him. And if you know love, and all of you do, you can't make somebody love you. Look at Hosea. It does not work that way. Look at Israel. It does not work that way. God does not overrule your ability to think. He can't overrule your heart and make you submit to him, nor would he want to. He says, what I want to know is, will you choose to love me? There's a downfall to that. On the other side, you can choose to walk away from relationships. You can choose to have a father that you know and love, a lot that loves you and dotes on you, and despite the fact that God's overflowing love comes to you, you can reject it. God wants you to choose to love him. So that's what the prodigal does. He takes his money and he runs to the big city. Or he takes his money and he runs to the bar. Or he takes his money or he runs to the brothel, a word that we don't use very often. Or he takes his money and he runs down the street to Tunica. And he blows all of that inheritance on a fun weekend. I want you to go to the next slide for me, please. I want to give you three words that describe the background of this situation. Here's the first one. It's the word reckless. The text says reckless living. Reckless living. What does that word reckless mean? You know what I think is awesome about the word reckless? The word reckless is vague. I think intentionally vague. I think it's put there on purpose because you know what done? You all have ideas in your mind about what reckless means in this text. And as I read it for myself, I had some assumptions about what this meant. For instance, I thought for sure that the text says that he went to the big city and blew his money. I guess in New York, or for us, it would be like Memphis. But when I look in the text, it doesn't say that. It says far away land, a distant land. You know, another thing that isn't there that I thought for sure would be there. I, I thought for sure that I would have found what type of sin that he was involved in. That he spent it on women that he spent it at a bar, that he spent it blowing it down at Tunica, everything that he had, it's not there. It's not in the text. But these thoughts are here, and do you know how they got here? It's because the text is vague. So what preachers have done, and I'm going to do it too, is we take this vague word of reckless and we apply it in ways that matter to us and matter to you. We all if we're honest, at some point in our lives have lived recklessly. And the hardest thing of all is that oftentimes those very things and those very years that are reckless, we don't look back at them and mourn, but we look back at them and smile. We beat our chest about them. We tell our boys about them. You should have seen me when I was a young man. You should have seen me when I was sowing my wild oats, and boy, did I ever. You should have seen me when I was a boy and before I became a man. And we laugh. But our God doesn't. 
it breaks our Father's heart. Go to the next slide. Here's another really hard word. He squanders. The text says he squanders. Specifically, the text says that he squandered his property. But if you've ever lived recklessly, you know that he did a whole lot more than squandered his property, didn't he? He probably took of his youth and he squandered that. He probably took the relationship that he had with his friends and with his brothers and he squandered that. Here's a really hard one. He took time. And while we don't know if it was two weeks or two days or two years or two decades, he took whatever amount of time that it was and it was a day more than it should have been and he flushed it down the drain. He squandered it. He squandered it. But you know what's even harder? He didn't just squander these things. The most devastating thing that he did of all is he took his relationship with his daddy and he said, Daddy, you might as well be dead to me. He said, everything you've worked hard to get, one-third of all the inheritance... Daddy, I could wait, but to me, you're dead. I want it now. And he took it and he said, your, your inheritance is worth to me a fun trip to blow. He squandered it. And then what happens to him? Well, he hits rock bottom, doesn't he? He loses all of his money and he goes into a place that he can work for somebody. And being a Jew, and this was especially for a Jewish person, because they would have known it was an unclean animal. He works at feeding pigs. And he feeds these pigs, and he dreams about just having the pods of the pigs to eat. If I could just have some slop from that hog, I would be happy. And he ain't even good enough, and his master don't even like him good enough that maybe he would let him have that. He doesn't give him anything. That's how it feels to have hit rock bottom to have lived recklessly, to have lived squandering. He's lost it all. And as tragic as these two words are, and listen to what I'm intentionally doing, we are spiraling downhill. We're going, and it's bad. We're, we're about to explode here at the bottom. As bad as these two words are of reckless and squandering, and they are, they are horrible. It's what got him to rock bottom. Do you know what the hardest word is of all? And it's our third clueless. Those first two words, reckless and squandering, are rough, but they've got nothing on the third word, which is clueless, because reckless and squandering may have been what got him there, but clueless is the thing that kept him there. He didn't know his dad. I mean, if he spent one day in that slot longer than he had to, he had spent too long there because he didn't know his daddy. He was clueless to who his daddy was. He had made this caricature in his mind about what his daddy would and would not be like. And do you know, even though the text never says it, you can kind of imagine some of the things that he said. Well, I saw my daddy my whole life for 18 years. I saw him before I went to college. And my daddy is a hard man. There ain't no way he's going to accept me back. Or maybe he thought... Why would he have let me go? He knew I'd go blow his dough. Why knowing did he let me go do it? Or maybe he wondered, 
Why didn't daddy come look for me? Or maybe the hardest of all, maybe the family's better off without me. Daddy always liked my brother better anyway. This was his estimation. I will not be accepted as a son by my father. Why would he ever take me back? I've got no shot at it. I might as well just ask for the best thing that I think maybe he'd go for. Maybe in pity he'd make me a slave. And do you see a problem here? He's made a caricature in his mind about what he thinks God is like. He's clueless to the character of his father. We do the same thing. We make up these images in our mind about what God must be like, how he must act, and what he must think. Go to the next slide, please. Next. We'll come back to that one. We come up, and I'm, I'm totally ripping these from other preachers, but they're good, and I think they preach here. We come up with these images about what we think God must be like, and here's the first one. We think maybe our God is like a fast food God, and that we can have it our way. We view prayer life, worship, and spiritual disciplines the way that we view going through the drive through And if we're here, we expect what we came for. I've got my hand out. Let's give me my service. Hey, and preferably 15 minutes or less, please. Get it done now, God, like he's just going to spit out blessings because we put it in. What's the next one say? Some people view them like a good luck charm. Kind of like a rabbit's foot that you wear around your neck or like a four-leaf clover. You know, something I think is really interesting. My daddy, when we were kids, my little brother Justin could look down anywhere in the world. I mean, it was, I mean, he might still be able to do it. I'm not sure. I hadn't asked him. I need to. He can look, some of you are this way, by the way, anywhere and find a four-leaf clover sitting on the ground. It is remarkable. So daddy would take this wonder of a son that he's got that can find these four-leaf clovers. He would take them and he would take his Bible and he would lay it open and he'd, lay it flat and press that four-leaf clover in it. Now, why do I tell you that story? I think it's fitting that he took his good luck charms and he placed them in the Word of God because I think so often for Christians, we view the Word of God like it's our good luck charm. What do I mean by that? God, I'm here. And if I'm here and I'm putting my offering in the collection plate and I check off that box and I've worshipped today, then I expect some blessings to flow. I mean, I've got you with me. Why aren't you doing something? God, why hasn't something come, right? And we take this and we make it so shallow, this relationship that he's given to us. By the way, Israel did this, didn't they? Israel was going into battle um, against the Philistines. And they took the Ark of the Covenant with them, and God did not approve for them to go into battle, did he? No, he did not want them to go there. But even though they were given this ruling that you shouldn't go into battle, they were going to go anyway, and God was going to go with them. So what did they do? What did they stick in the front of the army as they were marching into Philistine territory? They took the Ark of the Covenant because God's mercy seat's there, and we will win this battle, and we will drag you to get you there, God. And God said... You think a relationship with me works that way? That you can just wave me in front of people like a wand and that what your will is will get done. It does not work that way. 
What's the next one? Some people view God like this cuddle bunny. Um, by the way, why would you want a cuddle buddy God that never judges you, that never gives a harsh punishment, that never will cause justice? He's just going to accept all things the way that they are, and, and no judgment will ever come. It's like God never did anything to harm anybody or cause correction or discipline in anybody. And, and by the way, the purest representation of God that we have seen with our own eyes was Jesus, right? And Jesus came to earth, and, and he never was harsh to anybody. He was harmless the whole time he was here, and he never did anything like flip over some tables. Or did he? Israel did this too. In Jeremiah chapter 7, Israel thinks that God will do uh, their bidding because they have God's temple. And if they've got God's temple, God is there. Never mind the fact that they have cult prostitutes, they worship and uh, offer their children as, as sacrifices to other gods. Never mind the fact that they have no relationship or covenantal relationship with him whatsoever. God is this cosmic cuddle bunny. And God said, I do not work that way, and it's a wrong estimation of God. And then here's the last one. And if I'm honest, I think this is the way I view God a lot, and I think the way the prodigal does. Like God is a time bomb, and he's ready to blow. And then if you make one mistake, or, or you, you fall away, or if, if you sin in some way, that God is ready to blow. He would love nothing more than to blow into smithereens. There was a preacher named Jonathan Edwards. He was really prominent, uh, influential in the whole churches that followed after him, and he was important. We needed his teachings. And while he, he preached about judgment, and pause here for a second, preaching about judgment is an important thing. Like, it's a real thing we need to talk about. But he used it as this weapon in one of his most famous speeches, or pre-lessons, sermons ever, was this sermon um, in which he depicted humanity like a spider on a single strand. And that God had us over this fire pit called hell. And that if you were to make one mistake, what God would love to do nothing else would be to cut that tie and let you burn and enjoy the fact that you're there. And the name of that sermon is, In the Hands of an Angry God, made to take people and cause them to repent and to fill up these first few pews. And while it is necessary to realize that our God is not a cuddle bunny, manipulating the emotions because you're terrified of the Father is also not who he is. You want to know a good representation of him? Look at Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 11. Listen to this. Say to them as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from their ways and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? It does not see God. God does not have pleasure in destroying the wicked. God has pleasure in the wicked repentant. That's where God finds his pleasure in us. Do you know what's wrong with all of these? Go to the next slide, please. Do you know what's wrong with all of these caricatures 
the fast food, good luck, charm, cuddle buddy, and time, God, uh, time bomb God. All of these are characters of the Father. D do not capture his reality. Can you go back to that caricature picture there, Paul? You know what's so cool about a caricature? Has anybody ever done this, by the way? Have you ever gone to like Six Flags and have you and your sweetheart get painted up? Anybody? Okay, me and you, man. The rest uses liars. I know there are others. Now, what he does is he takes this girl <laughs> and he points out some prominent features. He's got two big buck teeth in the front. He's got his big nose there and a little chin, and he's got that weird haircut that looks like Jonathan's. <laughs> and so he takes these prominent features and he makes them the main thing in his picture. And people look at them and they laugh a little bit, but they go home and cry that he would have picked that out, you know? And uh, this is the way a caricature works. You get that, right? This does not represent the reality. What's really interesting is that what it may be is that he loves her buck teeth. That might be what he thinks is so beautiful about her. And Madison loves my weird hair and bow tie, even if Spencer makes fun of them, you know? Like, these are things that are loved about people. Now, let me tell you what we do to God. We take images like the time bomb and, and the good luck charm and all of these different things, and we, we ascribe them to God because it's there that we see and we have and we feel this, this sin in him or something like that. But that is not the case. It's not who he is. Those caricatures that we've made in our mind are not a representation of him at all. I want to confess to you that I... Um, I've made a mistake in my ministry and preaching in that, and you don't know me because you don't see me every week. Uh, even the place that I'm at now would say, oh, Jonathan, you don't do that. But they've only known me for nine months. But I've watched me grow, and I can see patterns that are repeating. And one thing that I've found myself getting into the habit of doing is, is preaching moral lessons, moralist lessons. So you, you need to change your behavior and look more like Jesus. You need to quit cussing. You need to quit drinking. You need to quit sleeping around. You need to quit having sex before you're married. You need, to, you need to treat your children better. And you need to do this to be more like Jesus. And listen, there is a point to moral lessons. We should change our behavior to better submit to Jesus. And we should look like him as we do it. But here's my fault. You could go into any Buddhist temple. You could go into any mosque. You could go talk to a bunch of atheists. And they could give you moral lessons. I'm not a moral teacher. I'm a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you've changed your behavior, but you don't know the Father, you're clueless. You've made a caricature of him, and you're clueless. And I'm afraid that even though at times I've tried so hard to submit to him, and I want to be like, and I want to please him in my preaching, that I have made the game wrong, and I put my ladder on the wrong wall, and I've, I can't make a caricature. I need to know the Father. I need to know the Father. What would keep you a day from returning to the Father in the way that you should?
Look at verses 20 through 24. Luke chapter 15, verses 20 through 24. He arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Daddy, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, pause. You know what he's getting ready and he thinks he's going to hear from his daddy. Yeah, you want to be a slave? Get to it, buddy. Get to it. You want to be a slave? You spit in my eye. You deserve to be rejected. Get there. That's the caricature he's made. But that's not what he gets, is it? Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe, and you put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this is my son. He was dead, and he is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. (laughs) He was just wanting and praying for the opportunity to be a slave. And what he found was an even greater blessing, greater than he even knew how to pray for and ask for. What prevented the prodigal from returning to God? Yeah, he was reckless. Yeah, he had squandered. Yeah, he had spit in his daddy's eye and told him he wished he were dead. But what kept him in that pig pen was the fact that he was clueless to the character of his father and had traded his character in for a caricature of him instead. Look at these lessons in grace. Go to the next slide in these next images. These are images that aren't like the other ones because in these images I see more than simply gifts. I see things that I find in Scripture over and over and I find words and themes in them. For instance, this robe. What does a robe represent? He gives him a robe. Well, I'm reminded of a robe in 1 Samuel. When Hannah loves her son Samuel so much, she's prayed for years and gone to the temple and cried, and her and Elkanah couldn't have this baby. She finally gets this baby, and she knows she's made a promise to God. I've got to take him to the temple. She takes that baby to the temple, and she can't be with him from the time that he's weaned, but you know what she can do? She takes him a little robe, and she says, Baby... I might not can see you, but every year when I see you, I'm going to bring you the best clothes that we have in our home, and I'm going to tailor fit a robe that fits just you. And even though he might not get to see his mama when he wore his robe and was known by his robe, by everyone that knew him, you know what they thought about? You know what he knew? My mama loves me. That robe is a symbol of love. What about that ring? I think about Joseph. And I think about how Joseph saved Egypt and the rest of the region from this famine that was coming, right? And about how Pharaoh put a lot of stock in what Joseph said in these interpretations in the dream. And he said, if you're going to be my servant, you're going to do this for me, and you're my right-hand man, I'm going to give you a signet ring. You're like an extension of me now. And if you say something with that ring, you can open any door. You have this representation of authority for me. He gave him a ring, and he gave him sandals. Well, what do sandals represent? I'm reminded of when Israel was wandering through the desert. They were walking through the desert for all of those years, and when they got out, God wanted to remind Israel of his love. 
and about how he cared for them every day. So he said, there's something on you that did not wear out the entire time you were wandering through the desert. Your clothes didn't wear out, and neither did your sandals. God was providing for them. He'd given them provision, but not just sandals. And last of all, he throws a party. They have a shindy. The son that was dead has come home. He is home, and I have him here. I want you to check this out. Go to the next slide, please. What he wanted and what he prayed for, he put those hands together and he said, God, our Father, if you will just let me please not be a son, but take me back as a servant. It's all that I ask for. It's all that I want. And rather than what he asked for, what he got was a blessing instead. He got forgiveness and love and provision and protection and a party. He got more blessing than you can hold in one hand. He had it all from a father that willingly accepted him back and was so much better than any caricature we make in our minds. Amen? I, um, <laughs> before we left Sumter, we had chickens in our backyard. And, uh, we loved our chickens. We started off with six. One of them got sick. We ended up with five. We lost one. We ended up with four. But we had our four, you know. And we love these chickens now. We'd go out. Silas would feed the chickens. We named all of them. And one day I went outside. And of my four chickens, there was one that was gone. Now, I know them by name. You know which chicken was gone? It was buffalo. My poor buffalo chicken. He was gone. I said, Buffalo, where did you go, my darling Buffalo? Have you flown the coop? Have you left the nest? Did you jump over the fence? Now, behind my yard is a swamp, okay? And I thought, oh, a gator got him. He's gone for sure. And for the first couple of days, I was hopeful we might spot little Buffalo. I would listen out in the woods, and I would think, do I hear the pattern, the pitter-patter of a little Buffalo's feet? kicking over leaves as he tramples through and frolics through the woods? Did I catch a little glimmer of a feather that flew behind a tree as I looked in the backyard? Did I hear his wings flap majestically through the air? But no, it can't be. My darling buffalo is gone. My baby, my prodigal. So, one day, a boy from church <laughs> comes over, all right? And we, I said, let's go out and feed the chickens. You know, let's go do that. So we go out and we look at the chickens, and I go and I count my chickens, and you will not believe who was there. Who? Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Buffalo. I said, Buffalo, you're home. You probably, and the buffalo was half the size he was when he's left. He had lived a prodigal lifestyle, and he had lost a lot of weight. But Buffalo had returned, and I, I said, Madison, come look, 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 look. And she looks out, and she says, it's Buffalo, you know. And we threw a flock party, and my Buffalo had returned. Now, do you know what would not have 
whoa, made any sense at all. What if, when I saw a buffalo chicken, rather than throwing a flock party and having, uh, throw, you know, have, making a big deal out of it, what if instead of doing that, what I did was, I said, I'm going to punish you, and I will put you in your own separate little prison coop, or I will chop you up, and I will put you in chicken soup. Now, would that have made any sense? No. And we would never have done that. What were we always going to do because Buffalo had returned? We threw a party, and we filled him up, and we had a good time because our prodigal has returned. That's what we were always going to do, and we wanted some more eggs anyway. Here's what I know. Today, there are prodigals who, for whatever reason, are waiting when they need to return to their father. So my question for you is, what is it that prevents you from returning to him? What keeps you in your seat? What keeps you in your slop? Why won't you return to your father? Maybe it's that you're not sure of the grace that will come when you return. And if today you want to return and submit to a God who wants to love you and make you like him and cherish you, and that's the God you want to submit to, then why don't you come submit to the God, Jesus, as we stand and as we sing.